The guest today, Dr. David Corten, K-O-R-T-E-N. He is the founder and president of the People-Centered Developmental Forum and co-founder of the Positive Futures Network, which is an international grassroots organization dedicated to empowering people to work towards a more just and compassionate future through networking. And they also have a publication called Yes, and also the author of When Corporations Ruled the World. Dr. Corton received his MBA and PhDs from Stanford University Business School and uh, served as an Air Force captain during the Vietnam War and also uh, taught at Harvard School of Business for five years. Nice to have you with us today. Delighted to be on your show, Gary. Now, I'm going to ask uh, a question, but I'm first going to make a, uh, a statement and then offer us a quote that may seem far afield, but we're going to draw a, a line around all this and show how a lot of things are connected we don't even think about, all right? I'm with you. Okay. I'm going to begin by quoting an article that was in Mother Jones. You're familiar with Mother Jones. Yes, I am. And Excellent magazine. This particular article uh, is a 12-part article, and, and let me uh, quote just part of it here, and I'll try to show the relevance from... Uh, what we're going to talk about. It says, they're talking about the Mississippi River, and the author says, this once was one of the most prolific bodies of water on earth, a place where the outflow from the Mississippi River introduced freshwater nutrients into the deep water environment. But long before Katrina, the Gulf had become one of the world's most polluted marine ecosystems, with mercury loads among the highest ever recorded, including levels in blue marlin 30 times above what the EPA deems safe for human consumption. An average of 10 tons of mercury comes down the Mississippi every year, with close to another ton added by the offshore drilling industry. Equally alarming, a sizable portion of the Gulf is so biologically dysfunctional on a seasonal basis that it's known as a dead zone, the largest such area in the United States and the second largest on the planet, measuring nearly 8,000 square miles. That's larger than the state of New Jersey. And that's just at the Gulf, right where Mississippi uh, passes by New Orleans going into the Gulf. Dead zones occur when wherever oceanic oxygen is depleted, below the level necessary to sustain marine life, a result of eutrophication or the release of excess nutrients into the sea, usually from the agricultural fertilizers. Fifty years ago, no one imagined that the Green Revolution would prove so lethal to the world ocean. But now we know that chemical fertilizers cause plants to bloom in the sea as miraculously as they do on land, with deadly consequences. It's no coincidence that almost all of the nearly 150 and counting dead zones on Earth lie at the mouths of rivers. The Gulf of Mexico suffers the downstream effects of the mighty Mississippi, which drains 41% of the contiguous United States, including all of the extensively farmed breadbasket. This outflow delivers enough nitrogen to stimulate explosions of plankton and microalgae, some of which form the red tides that produce major fish kills and dolphins and manatees die-off. 
at even higher densities as these planktons die in mass and settle to the bottom, they fuel a bloom of bacterial decomposers, which consume all the available oxygen in the water. Quite simply, the resulting condition known as hypoxia strikes the gulf whenever oxygen levels fall below 2 milligrams per liter, an annual summertime event in the warming waters of the gulf since the 1970s. For sea life, it's as if all the air were suddenly sucked out of the world. Those creatures that can swim away survive. The rest die. Unquote. Now, why is that significant? Now, I'm going to go from there. Please uh, just bear with me, audience, to today. Today, if you look in the papers, and I read uh, probably a dozen major papers each morning, just so I can see uh, where we are and, and, more importantly, what people's perceptions look like. We have the following. We have uh, that pension dollars and pockets of terrorists. Again, all of these are connected. Let's see if you can figure out how. I'll quote this. It's short. More than $28 billion in state pension funds have been invested in companies doing business with terrorist nations, Iran, Syria, the Sudan, and North Korea. All right? That's $28 billion. That means school teachers and firefighters and police officers and civil servants. The money that they set aside for their future and their retirement is actually funding terrorist states. Do we think about it? Next up is this. Pensions weigh in uh, on Iran. There is a question. There's over $570 billion in assets that are being uh, challenged because at least how they're invested because they're not invested in things that are really ethical, that are not doing anything good for the planet, that are just out there to make money. And here's the last two that I want to talk about. This is today's front page of the Wall Street Journal. The front page headline says, the governments get bolder in buying equity stakes. Let me quote this. It says, from Jason Singer, Foreign governments flush with cash and no longer content with the meager returns to be had on safe but low-yielding investments like treasuries are becoming increasingly aggressive players on the equity front. The new boldness of these government-controlled investors was on display Sunday night when entities controlled by the government of China and Singapore agreed to invest as much as $18 billion in return for stakes in these major equity firms. Now, why is all this important and what does this have to do with us? I'll just take one more moment and then I'm going to turn this over to my guest who will have unlimited amount of time to explore this. I believe that we have reached a point where we cannot sustain ourselves indefinitely based upon unmitigated greed and if anything, corporations or individuals within corporations and government agencies frequently affected by the corporate mantras that suggest that profit or the uh, profitability of various investments exceeds reason, morality, any form of ethics, or care for the consequences to individuals or the environment. As a result, you will have today money made, the primary money on Wall Street, 
Yes, profits are there from the pharmaceutical industry, from the uh, energy sectors, from the financial sectors, and from the agri-sections. But those only represent about 12% of the actual value of Wall Street. One of the highest percentages causing the artificial bubble is equities and hedge funds. Equities don't make the country better by creating sustainable industries, building factories, putting people to work, strengthening local economies, and caring for them. The equities are cleaned up sanitized name for corporate raiders. These are people who make money off the deal. That means that they load companies up with enormous debt. They give the people who are running a company they want to buy excessive incentives. They give the stockholders excessive incentives. So everybody looks the other way, and everybody knows what's about to happen. Someone's going to get taken over. A company's going to get taken over. But the average worker's going to get fired. The company will be loaded with debt. And uh, the value of that company in the future will be junk and frequently goes broke. I have taken the time to look at 200 equity deals, and only three of 200 deals were ever sustainable in any way for the shareholders and the people in the company. 26 million Americans in the last 25 years have lost their jobs due to corporate takeovers, and mainly spurred by five individuals, T. Boone Pickens, Carl, um, uh, 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 Ivan Botsky, um, Carl Icahn, and uh, Kravitz, and uh, let's see this, uh, what, what's his name? Not Steinberg. Yeah, uh, Steinberg. And, uh, and, and these, and Michael Milken, and these are individuals who didn't need the money. And these are corporations that didn't need the money. And they wrecked havoc in their path. But nobody cared. What happens when we only care about how much money someone makes, but not how they make it? then why should we care about how people are farming? Why should we care about what kind of fertilizers they're using or what happens to those fertilizers when they go into Mississippi? Why should we care when the thousands of tiny little islands that used to exist off the shore of New Orleans were all developed so that there was no longer a way for the ocean when it came in with a storm to absorb the impact by having that water hit barrier islands and therefore lessen the ferocity. It can take a Category 3 to a Category 1. It can stop the surge in tidal waves. Had we not destroyed all those for development, had we not had eutrophication, had we not had a profit as the basis of that manipulation, Katrina would not have been so severe, and we wouldn't have a dead zone in the Gulf that has permanently affected that area and is continuing all around the world. So if we do not pull back and look at uh, what our actions are, then we won't care. We won't care that our pension funds are funding slave labor in China or tyranny in Iran where women will get beaten if they uh, don't have the right scarf on or jailed or thrown out of the city for five years, which is the new punishment. At some point, do we as Americans have any responsibility for the consequences of our capital? That is my larger question. Now let us go to our guest standing by. Please take your time. I realize that was a lot all tied together, but I felt it was necessary since we're dealing with the crisis of this empire, and that's all we have in America today, is we have an empire and we're acting like we are the dominant people in empire. The form is yours. Gary, that is uh, that is an extraordinarily impressive uh, analysis and uh, quite, a, quite an opening for... Uh, 
for my message. As you say, it's, uh, it is so broad, it is so comprehensive, uh, but you're asking the kinds of questions that, uh, that rarely come to the surface. Um, as some of your listeners may know, um, you know the, the, the book I'm most known for is When Corporations Rule the World, and uh, you know, that came out in 1995 and presented an analysis of the, kind of the internal dynamics of the, of the system that you describe. You know, myself coming out of a business education background, um, you know, I was I was taught about the the wonders of this system as a system for creating uh, wealth. Uh, the idea that uh, the <clears throat> focusing on returns to money uh, results in in creating ever expanding wealth uh, to to make us all better off. Now, um, I spent most of my adult life working in low-income countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, uh, coming out of a very conservative background and, uh, you know, coming to be aware that uh, many of the revolutions that I was concerned about as a conservative young Republican were uh, a result of poverty. So um, it seemed like a wonderful thing to do with my life to go out and work on ending poverty by advancing uh, U.S., you know, bringing to other people the secrets of U.S. business success. Now, I'm kind of a slow learner, but over a period of 30 years, I, I gradually come to realize that uh, that going right down to what uh, what we measure as economic growth, uh, in many ways, can best be described as a process by which the, uh, the rich the rich are expropriating the resources of the poor to convert them to garbage at an accelerating rate to make money for people who already have more than they need, and that. Uh, um, you know, you, you can see it so directly in many low-income countries as you see the land and water resources being expropriated from poor people uh, who depend on them for their modest livelihoods to uh, support uh, any, everything from golf courses to shrimp farms that, uh, that mainly benefit people who are already uh, better off. And, you know, that's, that's what's behind the process that we uh, consider to be uh, our wealth generation process. You know, ultimately, I came home to, uh, uh, when, once I began to realize that, that much of that problem uh, of the poor abroad um, is also being played out in our own country, and that the United States bears major responsibility for the devastation that's being experienced all around the world on a global scale of uh, increasing inequality, um, driving more and more people into desperation, which, of course, is the, uh, in many respects the, the underlying cause of the terrorism that, uh, uh, that we're experiencing, and, of course, trashing the environment and also destroying the, uh, the social fabric of, of society by um, essentially perverting cultures that are uh, supportive of uh, the protection of nature, of uh, strong families and communities, and turning them into uh, cultures of, of greed that are devoted solely to uh, uh, to producing uh, producing money for rich people. And you know, they um, <clears throat> I've been recently involved with a number of initiatives that uh, are uh, uh, focused on trying to reclaim our power from from corporations um, by changing the rules under which corporations operate and of course uh, we've we've seen actually over um, 
over several centuries, but particularly um, particularly now the, the, through the uh, through the global trade agreements uh, that many of us have, have mobilized to um, you know to expose that you know far from uh, creating international cooperation and uh, global wealth, they're they're really use of international agreements and treaties to eliminate the rules that constrain uh, corporate uh, behavior and constrain the uh, the concentration of wealth. Um, so there, you know, there's there are groups working on these these issues, including such issues as uh, trying to correct the enormous legal distortion that was created some years ago when. Uh, there was a Supreme Court case that uh, is is used as a as the basis for the argument that corporations have the same rights as uh, as natural persons. Um, but in you know, in looking at that at that question, okay, how much of the problem that we face can we can we solve through um, through the uh, the changing the, the the rules of corporations? Um, and there there's a kind of you know, there's a there's a strong hope out there that since corporations have the power, uh, they can be, um, uh, you know, they can be turned through changes in the rules to moving us in a positive direction. Now, one of the one of the things that that is I've looked into that more deeply, um, I find we're forced to confront is that. By the very nature of the system, and you describe it so well in terms of, you know, it's just morphing into increasingly greedy, destructive. Uh, uh, one of the statistics I didn't hear you mention was that a report in the New York Times um, that last year the, the highest paid uh, hedge fund manager uh, was compensa- had a compensation of $1.7 billion for one year. You know that's one thousand seven hundred million dollars, um, and of course the the hedge funds and the private equity funds that are generating these enormous uh, returns for their um, for their chief executives um, are are basically engaged in in financial speculation um, and a process of that you know, once you understand what it's about they produce absolutely nothing. They often support things that are extraordinarily destructive. Uh, but it's all about uh, extracting, um, well, uh, accumulating control of ever greater amounts of money. Um, let, let me just interrupt and add something on to that. Yes. Because people do not understand how it works. And just a brief overview on this. Mm-hmm. We've been led to believe that pension, uh, that the hedge funds were mainly, uh, until about five years ago, for very wealthy people. In fact, some hedge funds you couldn't invest unless you had at least $5 million to invest in the fund. And then the fund managers would make their money, the people who actually founded these funds, on 2% generally. Uh, some cases it may be 1% more or 1% less, but the average was 2% of the total fund of investments, plus if they took as much as 20%, 15 to 20% of the profit off any special deals they made. Now, that if people understand, that's how these hedge fund people made their money. But here's what no one realized until recently. And this came out when I saw that, I saw this a year and a half ago when I was in Philadelphia doing a lecture, and I was speaking with a group of poor people. And I lecture before poor, poor people and try to get them empowered to do things together in community. 
uh, to support one another. Because if you have five poor people working together, you can share skills, you can barter, and you can get a lot more done than one person on their own. So, And then I started asking, how many of you uh, rent and what's your rent? And I was just shocked at how many people own their homes. So I said, mm. well, I said where did you get the money? Oh, we got mortgaged. I said, how did you get uh, a mortgage? And when they started telling me, I started to do some investigation, and I said, well, these are not legitimate. And they said, what do you mean? I said, first off, and there was one guy in particular, what do you think your home's worth? Well, it was worth about 50000 What was your mortgage? Oh, about 125000 I said, so someone falsified your value of your property so you would take out a higher mortgage. Did you save that money? No. So now you owe 125000 Your property taxes are going to go up in direct association with the increased five-year land. And now do you, have cre- do you have credit? No. Do you have money in the bank savings? No. Do you have an income you can absolutely guarantee for the next 30 years going to have? No. So that meant that they gave you a subprime. So you, did you read the fine print that it's going to kick into 8% in three years and then 10% two years after that? No. Did you look at the fine print if you miss payments? You get an accelerated uh, interest rate? No. And I said, well, this is a major scandal. And I started talking about on my radio show, this show, and I started saying there's a major bubble. It is the uh, subprime rate. And when this kicks in, watch, watch the foreclosures. Well, that's exactly what has happened, exactly. And here's what, and we knew that, but everyone lied at the federal level about how much was involved. Oh, it's, you know, $5 billion. Try $6 trillion. You heard me right, $6 trillion. Now, how much has been lost? Well, Bear Stearns lost $1.4 billion two weeks ago, and another firm lost $900 bill, a million. another lost $300 million. another, uh, uh, and, and uh, General Motors, their uh, their profitable division, which is they own uh, Ditech, that's their company. They lost um, uh, 1.2 billion. So now the figures are roiling over, and it's around 25 billion. Bernanke on uh, Friday said that he felt that it would go to 100 billion, and I believe he is underestimating it. And here's why: Guess who was borrowing and using? using the, uh, the uh, sub- subprime as overinflated asset to borrow anywhere. And I saw figures of 28 to 1. The average was 15 to 1, the hedge funds. So a hedge fund was borrowing 28 times the value of its investment and putting up one, borrowing 27 against that, and it was barring it on quicksand. So I said this, and I said, if you're in hedge funds, get out. Though a lot of them don't allow you to get out and uh, without penalty or a time frame. So what, is, what did the New York Times business section say on uh, Friday? You guessed it. Quote, the entire uh, hedge fund is built upon, hedge funds are built upon sand. And why? Because no one realized the hedge funds were borrowing so heavily because you, th- you thought the illusion was that a hedge fund is using its own money to invest. Wrong. The hedge funds were borrowing, and they were borrowing on a high risk. And guess what foreign governments, and that's why I read the quote today, now foreign governments are saying, ah, let's get into the equity market. Well, guess who has the highest spread of debt to asset? Uh, the equity market. These guys are borrowing, frequently putting down as little as 5% of their own money, and borrowing from Wall Street firms 
on the assumption that they can load the company they're buying up with debt, take that as their profit. So they're making 100% profit off the bat, right off the bat. And then the company struggles with the debt it's incurred. But what were they using as their collateral? You guessed it, subprime. So now they went from AAA rated on many of those bonds. Bonds held by what? You guessed it, subprime. So the whole damn economy out there in, in, in a lot of the equity and a lot of the uh, uh, hedge funds had subprime mortgages as their asset and overinflated assets. So now what's going to happen is two things. A, someone is going to demand an actual authentic accounting. What are the subprimes actually valued at today? And I'm going to say 60% of the value is going to be deflated. And that means that those equity firms and hedge funds are going to have to cough up the money. And that's going to put them into bankruptcy. And that means that school teachers and others who didn't pay attention to where their money was being invested are going to get wiped, going to lose some or lose a lot or lose everything. And that's going to cause a tipping factor in at least one segment of our economy. Your thoughts on that, please. Well, Gary, what you're what you're talking about, uh, I mean, the, f- the financial system, as is clear from your analysis, which I, as far as I'm aware, is totally accurate. Um, the whole financial system is becoming increasingly unstable as we have moved ever more away from uh, a concern for economic activity in terms of producing real goods and services to meet real needs of people, to being simply a system for making money for rich people. And here, you know, here's here's a piece of the, you know, where we get where we get led astray. We have been, you know, going through business school. Um, you know, I was I was conditioned as the as the public is to think of money as wealth, um, and the the mythology that if someone's making money, they are in fact creating wealth, which ultimately is supposed to improve the lives of all of us. Now, one of the one of the basic things that that we're, we're we're actually trained to not recognize is that money in itself is not not wealth. Uh, it is an accounting chit, and those who possess the you know it's really the accounting chits really represent a measure of the power of the people who control those chits. Now again, we're uh, you know we're, we're we're trained to well we're, we're trained to not know where money comes from. We're just accepted. It. It's just there. Um, we, you know, so as as we get dependent on an economy that depends more and more on money for, or what each of us depend more and more on money for every aspect of, of our lives, it gives enormous power to the people who, um, who have the power to create money and to decide where it goes. Now, uh, over time, with the ethic that has Begun to, has come to permeate our economic life and our national life. That that wealth is money. That the pursuit of wealth is the uh, is the the ultimate um, uh, the ultimate value. The uh, the ultimate measure of personal success. And the uh, the magazines that celebrate the wealthiest among us. Attention is focused more and more on essentially how to manipulate the system of creating money out of nothing, uh, and then. Through all kinds of very complex processes of uh, of borrowing and speculation and uh, uh, creation of financial bubbles, you end up with an enormous concentration of economic financial power in the hands of very few people. 
Now, the other piece that ties in with your earlier analysis of the, of the economic crisis uh, is that, you know, that process of economic growth, is, which I explained is the process of rich people expropriating more and more of the real assets of the planet to convert them into money, uh, we miss the fact that overall the, the, the life support system, the natural living systems of, the, uh, of, of Earth are being depleted at a rapid, a rapid rate, an accelerating rate, through exactly the processes that you described which means that on a global scale as a species, we are in fact becoming ever poorer, not richer. And of course, our, our economic growth statistics uh, create the illusion that in fact we are creating wealth, we're becoming richer by the day. But the reality is quite clear. If we, um, you know, what we're depleting is the life support system of the planet. If there's, no, um, if there's no life support system, there's no life. And if there's no life, the whole concept of wealth loses, uh, loses its meaning. So. The, the big global picture is a world in which uh, we're in fact getting poor, population continues to grow, which means that in terms of real assets, real wealth, um, uh, per capita, the per capita shares of that wealth are declining. But at the same time, financial uh, wealth is, is pyramiding through all these schemes you describe and being ever more concentrated in a very few hands of, of a few people who then control a growing portion of what remains of the shrinking wealth base. And that, you know, that is a, that is a path to never-never land for the human species. And one of the, uh, you know, quite apart from the fact that the processes you describe are, are extremely unjust and, of course, are leading us toward uh, an, uh, an inevitable financial collapse, um, it, is, it is also a process that is accelerating uh, the, the destruction of the life support system and increasingly threatens the uh, the very survival of the species. Now, what this means is that our you know we need we need a complete reorientation in our whole thinking about uh, about economy, about wealth, and about how we use the remaining resources of the planet. And of course, what it what it requires is the the reallocation of uh, of real resources from destructive uses like military to um, uh, efforts to restore uh, restore the health of the planet. But most uh, the trickiest, the most difficult of the whole thing is that it requires reversing the process of growing the wealth gap. And you know currently the the total the total purpose of our whole financial system is is actually playing out is to increase the wealth gap. And it is built right into a system of designing an economy to maximize returns to money, which means returns to people who have money. So um, it becomes built right into the, uh, uh, the profit system, which is running so far out of control um, as, to, uh, as to threaten our, our future. And it means that... I mean, one of the, one of the things that's missed even tends to be missed even within most of our more progressive discussions is that to have sustainability, to restore our balance between humans and Earth, uh, that cannot be done in our current world without moving in the direction of equity, more equitable allocation of the remaining resources of the of the planet to meet the needs of every uh, of every living person. 
as well, of course, of, of, the, of the natural natural living systems, which means that we've got to create an economy that instead of inexorably increasing the wealth gap, which every one of those schemes that you talked about is doing, we need we need to give absolute priority to turning that process around to reduce the wealth gap, to increase the equal equity of distribution both of, uh, of income and of the control of, of assets. Now, one of the things I've come to realize in, in looking at the issues of corporate reform, that there is no way that you can do that within the corporate system itself or within the financial system uh, other than by uh, rich people uh, voluntarily um, voluntarily through charitable contributions and uh, intentional investment in, uh, in investments that produce a negative return in favor of, you know, negative financial return in favor of uh, environmental restoration and uh, improving conditions of, uh, of working people. And that's obviously not going to happen on a sufficient scale to, uh, uh, to reverse our global uh, course of the species. It means ultimately that there has to be, um, it has to be done through a public role, through um, very aggressive, um, progressive taxation and reallocation, control of financial markets, elimination of, uh, of, the, of this financial speculation, uh, tax rules instead of favoring speculation as they do now, uh, calling it uh, euphemistically capital gains. Um, but taxing those gains from uh, speculation at, uh, at as close to 100% as we can man manage on the basis that they produce no useful uh, good for society and are, in the end, horribly destructive, uh, so that we begin, uh, we begin to get a reallocation. We, f we focus, um, focus on encouraging people earning income through the actual production of goods and services, and um, Strictly limit, if not eliminate, uh, these these returns from purely financial speculation. That's a huge. It's a huge agenda. It requires a massive program of education of the type that you are um, carrying forward with your uh, with your listeners, and building a political movement that recognizes the interconnection between all of these issues that we're that we're facing from. Um, economic injustice to environmental destruction to war to um, uh, <clears throat> to the breakdown of, of, of family and community because uh, uh, ordinary working people simply cannot find the family wage jobs that uh, that allow them to, uh, to to raise healthy families and to participate in active community life I really appreciate the depth and um, the the compassion behind your answer, because it, it comes from a compassionate place, and we need more of that. Let me briefly uh, uh, share just a thought with you, and then I have two final questions for you. My thought has been that there are enough individuals like yourself, there are probably, oh, I would say in the neighborhood of at least 100,000 futurists. Now, these are not by profession. You don't get a degree in, a degree in futurism. It's simply someone who looks at how can we sustain life at a more equitable level for all people and improve the quality of life, not merely the standard of living for those who are the richest. And for that, you must, no matter how you look at it, redistribute asset. But you cannot do it in our current system because the current system is what controls itself, meaning it is self-perpetuating. It's like giving money to a charity. 90 cents out of every dollar stays with the charity, and we've seen this. 
But instead, if we had from the populist level up plans that would allow corporations to actually participate in the redeployment of resources that are sustainable by having a percentage of their tax dollars go to uh, communities. And these communities would be all around the United States for people at a certain income level to be able to move away from the existing over-congested East and West Coast, where now over 65% of the entire American population live within, are you ready for this, 65 miles of the ocean, either Atlantic or Pacific. And many of these areas are simply non-sustainable. The Southwest and the West simply environmentally are not sustainable. The Great Andreas Fault will happen in the next 20 to 25 years, according to geologists. We have worse weather conditions because of global warming. We have no water in the aquifer system from North Texas, from mid-Texas, clear up to Montana, clear over to uh, the coast. So instead, look at the look at 38 states in America that are sustainable, that do not have dense populations where you could put money to establish communities of the future that would be self-sustaining, that would be where corporate America would help pay for that, that therefore you would create jobs and, and communities that would have all their energy, have grow food organically. It may seem a little utopian or idealistic, but you have to start somewhere. And it actually takes people back to uh, just before the Renaissance, actually during the Renaissance and, and during the uh, uh, agricultural revolution, where people, uh, people were creating communities where people could uh, supply something they did, own their land, and be, uh, not be in debt. Today, the average American lives in a congested area, has debt, and we've gone through the, uh, the economic alchemy of converting debt as an asset. And we currently have $87.7 trillion in total debt in America, including $22 trillion in underfunded or unfunded entitlements. And that also includes $22 trillion that Wall Street has. So we are not telling the world that we actually have more debt than twice the global gross domestic product. We have more debt than there is money in the world to pay it. And so if we stop creating debt and actually created sustainable asset, but made the asset distri distributed starting first with those who have least by putting in communities with schools so everyone has schools, that you put in communities that use senior citizens, uh, take them out of retirement if they choose, and let them be a part of like a council of elders to give knowledge and insight to younger people, to have people of all backgrounds and crafts and skills share you go back to a bartering system, so not the only currency is not just the dollar that is falling in value, but also the currency of knowledge, the currency of compassion, the currency of caring, the currency of, of sharing. And look, look at what could be done so that corporate America would be able to share, the average person would be able to use, and everybody would be a part of the future. Final thoughts from you, please. Well, Gary, it's a, uh, it's a very interesting scenario you lay out, and a piece of your analysis I, I quite agree with, that, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the the groups that I work with, like the International Forum on Globalization, which uh, was one of the leading-edge organizations calling attention to the uh, defects of, uh, of corporate globalization. Um, I'm also involved with a group called the Business Alliance on Local Living Economies, um, uh, uh, for li local living economies, which is about building exactly the kind of local economies you're you're describing. The problem with your scenario is the premise that somehow we can reorient uh, for-profit corporations, particularly those that are uh, tied into the stock market and you know are 
or, or involve institutionalized absentee ownership that's totally disconnected from uh, the the interests of local communities. Um, the idea that uh, that those institutions, which currently hold the power, uh, can be reoriented from the exclusive pursuit of profits for rich people to uh, building uh, strong living systems and, and communities on the ground. Um, I mean, my field of study in business school and, my, and the field of teaching in business school was, was organization. And, uh, you know, I learned in that um, in that, that, uh, that the way to design our institutions is, is, is important and it's real and it shapes behavior in very powerful ways. And we see that playing out in the, in the dysfunctions of, of the financial system. I mean, my the conclusion I've come to is that the you know that that very that the very nature of that corporate form um, is antithetical to the uh, to the kind to developing the kinds of community-based economies that you're talking about that are uh, actually owned and controlled by local people who expect to be there for a very long time and are concerned about the. You know the community, the environmental uh, conditions that they that they leave for their, their children for generations to come, and that I believe uh, requires you know as sharply an opposite uh, as one could imagine to the uh, to the kind of uh, of inst- economic institutions and and the whole belief system underlying it um, uh, that that currently drives uh, drives our economic lives that we have to. To shift the control of resources from uh, institutions that are accountable only to free-floating global finance, uh, and shift control of those resources to to local communities, which is you know the theory that we work on with the on the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. Well, that uh, well, what, we're trying, what we're doing is building, uh, rebuilding economies from the bottom up around local independent businesses that are owned by people who live in the community and who actively consider that a major part of the return from their businesses, uh, um, in, in addition to a, a, a fair profit, uh, is, the, is the return that comes from living in a healthy community with, uh, with, uh, with a healthy social system and, and, and caring relationships among people. D- David, let me just interject. You're absolutely yeah. correct, and, and I fully appreciate uh, your point of view. I I understand that we must have that change. My thought was that I'm going to try, even on my own, to build such a community, uh, upstate New York, to show what is entirely possible. I, I own a little business, a little health food store here in New York, uh, up on the Upper West Side. And my rents are so prohibitively high that I don't know if I'll be able to continue even to offer the services I do. I looked at 19 closed businesses on Broadway between 89th and 68th walking to a movie the other night. Those were at one time little, little businesses that cared enough to offer services and uh, that uh, the average mega mall store would not. And we see the mauling of America now. We see the corporatization of America. We see the pathologizing of America. So I believe that we are both saying the same thing except you and the groups you're affiliated with are more inclined and, and probably far more astute at how to change the political system at the grassroots level if the average American is willing to pay attention to say, look, you should not have corporate, the corporate charter should not be a printing press. It shouldn't be that somehow people can control with power and wealth 
uh, the future of a country, and in ta- including making choices for people who have no say-so and have no vote in what uh, choice is being done because they are dominant. The economic model should not be the dominant model. I absolutely agree with that. In fact, yesterday, Morris Berman, are you familiar with Morris Berman? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, he, he's a great uh, futurist. He was on. And he talked about his pessimism about our nation's population's ability to consciously address the challenges before us. And, and, and I believe that what gives me optimism for believing our nation and the peoples of the planet can tackle the challenges before them to change the tides of decay and, and, further, increase, uh, and, and further increase our power and decrease the power of government and corporate dominance— is that I see the polarity between the mass of people living in an illusionary image of reality, uh, which is so based upon greed that you talk about, violence you've written about, and power that you have illustrated, and those who you believe in, and I believe in, who have become consciously aware that the way our society is structured and governed is a hoax, and that we, we should not continue to commit ourselves to a dichotomy between social illusion and reality. And the the story behind the illusion is that people are living their lives as if it were real and not that it is really a supporting an illusion and it's not real. So in both our own ways and many others, we will each address this and converge in different points. And I certainly respect your input, what you're all doing, and please give people your address and email so people can further communicate with you. Yeah, I don't know if you you can give me a few more minutes here. I, I can uh, give you two more minutes, and then our show's running out of time. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, first of all, there's a whole, you know, in addition to things like corporate charter, there's a whole set of rules at the local level that uh, that create the bias in the favor of the big box stores against the kind of stores that you're running, and that's another piece that we need to work with. Now, a whole big subject area here that you just let us into is the story and the illusion. Uh, a major part of my uh, of my Current book, the 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 great turning from empire to earth community, and you can find that at www.greatturning.org. Um, is that a key piece of the change is to recognize that we are locked into a cultural trance that is created by a set of stories that uh, condition us to believe that a system, and you know the 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 current unjust, uh, self-destructive economic system is in fact. Um, serving our needs and is the best and the only system that is possible. Uh, it's the same kind of process that conditions us to believe that our security depends on uh, strong, big military forces, um, major expenditures on police, um, and, uh, and wars of domination around the world. Um, it traces very back to our, uh, our underlying uh, stories by which we, our cosmology or creation stories, by which we define uh, the nature of understand the nature of reality, uh, our our human nature, and our relationship between uh, uh, between humans and uh, and creation and 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 Earth. And a key part of our change strategy needs to be to to change these stories. Just you know the kinds of things I mentioned of the the distinction between money and wealth. That money is not wealth, and then begin to see the what you're exposing, helping your listeners understand the. The real nature of these financial games and how they work and what the consequences are and how they are totally contrary to the uh, to the well-being of society. David, why, only... David, why don't we do this? Because we are out of time. Why don't yeah. I invite you back so okay. we can do part two and talk about the stories? 
I'd love to do that, Gary. All right, because I know that you, as well as anyone, are talking about we have lived lives by stories. And today, the story Americans live by is the story of empire, as it's been played out in the history for the past 5,000 years. So I'd like for you in our next interview to outline for us the shift between empire and what you define as earth community. How about that? I'd love to do that. All right, Richard Gale, we'll be in touch with you within the next half hour, and we'll get you back on as soon as you're available. Okay. Thank you very much. And my guest uh, from uh, one of the more remarkable minds on this planet, Professor David Corton. Uh, He is the uh, founder uh, and president of the People-Centered Development Forum, also formerly Stanford University Business School and Harvard Business School alumni.